good to be with you this morning. Weekends like this remind me of a scripture in Genesis, men, that it's not good for man to be alone. And I'm sure you understand that. I got an amen. I hope all of you have good friends that you can spend time with, that you just value their, their kind of, the kind of friends that you just simply want to be with. You just want to be with them. You don't have to plan it. You don't have to have a lot of things to do. There's no stress when you know they're coming or you're going to be spending time with them. It's just, it's just good, right? They're just good for your soul. They're good for your walk with Christ. They begin to rub off on you. You, you begin to reflect their characteristics, their mannerisms a little bit. Kind of like the old saying, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Or um, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. No, I don't. There's all kinds of sayings like that. and Some of them seem to hold some truth because we see it in our lives. I don't think it's quite that simple. There's a lot more variables into who we are and how we conduct ourselves than just who we spend our time with. But the fact remains that who we're with has significant impact on who we are and who we become and how we act and what we say. I spend time with certain people and I start to sound like them. I say things the way they say it, right? And who we are is important because of the impact upon us, but then also so is the why. Why, why are you with certain people? It becomes obvious when people are around you, not because they value you or love you, but rather they want something from you. Right? It starts to become evident. You see it. They're after something, not you, not your friendship. But there's a beauty and a sweetness to relationships that exist simply because you enjoy the person. You enjoy the presence of another. You just enjoy their company. And this dynamic of who you want to be with and why behind you wanting to be with them is the focus I want us to, to take in this text this morning. There's three groups of people. Three groups of people. And we're going to look at them in turn there. The crowds, the apostles, and then Jesus' family. And the call for us this morning is to be with Jesus. It's to be sufficient, to find satisfaction and contentment in being with the man, Christ Jesus himself. Not for what he can get us, although that is important. But be with Jesus. Jesus in this text now, this is Mark chapter 3. Go ahead and open your Bibles there. We'll start in verse 7. But the Pharisees now are planning to kill him and they're enlisting political help. They went and got the Herodians against him too. So he's got the religious and the political leaders after him now. This is not, a, not an enviable place to be. And let's read Mark 3, 7 through 21. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, 
so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, the sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. So three groups of people here. We have crowds, we have his apostles, and we have his family. Let's look at them each. Let's see what they want from Jesus and how we need to prioritize simply being with Jesus. See, so you have the crowds. The motives of the crowds here are what can I get from Jesus? What's in it for me? A great crowd followed, it says. Usually crowds in Mark, we've looked at this in the past, are, are, they're usually in the way of the people that truly need Jesus. They, they stand and observe, but they don't follow and commit to Jesus. They're kind of passive towards him. Not marked by pursuing him, but rather what can we get from him? And these crowds are not spiritually motivated. Christ is here to proclaim a kingdom, and they're here for the benefits. Their devotion to Jesus is shallow and insincere. It's important because it, it reveals us a lot about ourselves when we ask ourselves, why do we come to Jesus? Look at verse 8, the second part. They, it says the great crowd heard all that he was doing. They came to him. In other words, listen to what he's doing. He's healing. He's casting out demons. Let's go see what we can get for, from him. They're here for the benefits. This guy can heal me. He's doing great things. And it's a very real concern I think we should examine our own hearts in is, do we use Jesus as a means to our ends rather than just encountering Jesus and receiving all of who he is? Is he a means to our ends? He, he doesn't want to be. He isn't to be used for our gain. He doesn't exist like a genie in the bottle that we get to kind of rub and get three wishes from and all life is peachy. We don't come to Jesus for the benefits, although they are amazing. They are amazing. I don't downplay them. But we come to Jesus, come what may, because of who he is, because he's the sinless son of God. As the demons proclaim in verse 11, and he silences them. He, he came to earth to take on flesh, to live and die for us, then conquer the grave and rise again. And he's proven that he has power over death. He ascends on high. He's ruling a kingdom now that advances through the gospel. We come to Jesus because of who he is. He's king. He's the one true God. He's the only one that deserves our worship. He's the only way for salvation. We come to him and we receive him. And when we receive him, then we have everything in him. It centers in him. But haven't you been there? When you're crying out for some sort of deliverance from some sort of pain, some sort of frustration, some sort of difficult circumstance, and you're begging Jesus to take it away, and he doesn't, and you have to come and settle on, well, Jesus... You're enough. You are enough. 
If this pain never goes away, if the circumstance doesn't change, I'm here for you, Jesus, and you're enough. Imagine, try to get into this moment. How do we know this crowd is shallow and insincere? Look at verse 9 with me. Jesus told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. They're willing to crush Jesus to get what they want. Jump down to verse 20. Then he went home, Jesus did, and the crowd gathered again so they couldn't even eat. They don't mind keeping Jesus from eating if they can get what they want. And no regard for the man, Jesus Christ. No regard for his name. They wanted what they wanted. This is like a, like a paparazzi crowd coming around the superstar, just pressing in from all angles. And it's got to be chaotic in this moment. I mean, verse 10, when I read verse 10, I get the shivers. <laughs> like, look at verse 10. He healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Just imagine that in our post-COVID era. <laughs> pressing around him to touch him. No regard for him. This was a menacing scene where faith is lacking. Demons are hatefully and despairingly crying out the identity of Jesus, and he's silencing them. These people are not in it for who he is. He's not letting demons announce the kingdom. He's not the revolutionary Messiah that they want. He's a different kind of Messiah. He's making sure that they're pursuing him. And I love the practicality of our Savior amidst this, this chaos. He says, hey, have a boat ready so I can get away. They're going to crush me. The crowds don't want to be with Jesus. They just want to take from Jesus. Just give me what I want and all will be well. Look at verses 7 and 8, the makeup of this crowd. It's important for a point we'll look at later as well. But this crowd reflected a geographical area that the 12 tribes of Israel ruled in the time of the judges and then also after their return from Babylonian exile. This was, Mark is encompassing all of the region that Israel was intended to rule. There, it's a very diverse area here. He says from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, which is Jewish territories to the south of where he is up on the Sea of Galilee. And then you've got Jew and Gentile territories, Idumea, which is deep south, about 120 miles south, and then beyond the Jordan to the east. So there's Jew and Gentile mixed territories. And then Gentile territories, he mentions to the north, Tyre and Sidon. So Jesus is here being a light to the Gentiles, as Isaiah 49 was prophesying. But Jesus is coming to his own, even with Gentiles mixed in, and Mark's pointing out he's coming to his own people from every area of geographical Israel, and they're not receiving him. They want what they want. They don't want to just be with Jesus. They're not concerned about the person of Jesus Christ. And it's in this context where our Lord then begins to call to himself a new people, where Israel has failed to receive their Messiah, our Lord is beginning a new Israel of God with 12 apostles, which is reminiscent of 12 tribes. And so you have the crowds who are just in it for what they can get from Jesus. And now you have the second group, the apostles. 
And the motive of the apostles, at least some of them, is to be with Jesus. And this is because of Jesus' call in their life. Look at verse 13 with me. This is probably my favorite verse of the text. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. So he goes up on a mountain. And mountains are important in the Bible. Anytime there's a mountain referenced, like, get ready. Abraham's faith was proven on the mountain when he was about to offer up Isaac. Moses received the Ten Commandments on the mountain. Elijah heard from the Lord on a mountain. The temple is on Mount Zion. Faithful Israelites desire to ascend the hill of the Lord. And Jesus is no exception. In his ministry, when mountains are mentioned, it's insignificant. He prays on a mountain before walking on water. Where is he when he transfigures before uh, his disciples with Moses and Elijah? He's on a mountain. He spends time on a mountain before the triumphal entry. Mountains are important. That's why everyone's moving to Colorado Springs, I guess. When a mountain's mentioned, pay attention. And we know from the other Gospels that on this night, before this moment of calling the apostles, Jesus went up on a mountain and prayed all night long. He prayed all night long. It shows the significance of this moment. And he prayed for them and he went up on a mountain and then comes down. And what I love is that he expresses his desire for them. They were desired by Jesus, it says in verse 13. Those whom he desired, and they came to him. He has a, he has a plan for them. These apostles are going to be the nucleus of the, the new covenant people of God, a new nation, a holy priesthood. They're going to carry out the proclamation of this new kingdom in Christ's absence. But before we get there, Let's just dwell on the fact that Jesus desired them. And I want you to ask, do you feel desired by Jesus? You are made by him fearfully and wonderfully. He every day gives you life. He gives you breath. He gives you everything else. Though we've sinned and rebelled against him, he came for us, he laid his life down for us, he sought the lost to find us, he seeks the dead in sin to give us new life. He hears us when we groan. He sympathizes with your pain. If you're a bruised reed, he's not going to break you. If you feel like a smoldering wick, he's not going to extinguish you. These are themes Mark intends to bring out when he references Jesus as a suffering servant throughout his gospel. But he created you in his image, and though his image in you is marred by sin, he still desires you and delights to restore in you his very image. He loves you and gave himself up for you. It's good to be desired. It's good to be desired. You have a good understanding in this, of sin in this church. We know that apart from Christ, we have no hope. And sin truly does offend a holy God. But do not misunderstand that to mean that Jesus doesn't desire you. His heart is warm towards you, compassionate and sympathetic towards you. And he called these disciples to himself because he desired them. And he calls you this morning because he desires you. And they came to him, it says. And they came to him, 
And look at verse 14. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. Called to Jesus to be with him. Be with the man. Jesus now is the focal point of their lives. So this first step of their calling into apostleship, and the, the reality of this is true for us, though we are not apostles, we'll touch on that in a minute, is that you're called to a relationship with the Savior and the man, Jesus Christ. You're called to be with him. There's an element of desired companionship here. Jesus wanted friends with him. As I joked at the beginning, it's not good for man to be alone. And Jesus wanted men around him. And there were also women disciples with him too. But here he's appointing these 12 men as apostles. He wants friends. And you can tell that Jesus, you can tell when Jesus has been with certain people, haven't you? Don't, don't you know people that you're like, I know that person walks with Jesus. That person has been with Jesus. You, you see it in their life. It overflows out of them. Extended time together with Jesus allows you to begin to express his character. And what Jesus had for these apostles, this role that was coming was so significant that they needed to know Jesus inside and out first. They needed to be with Jesus. They needed to have this relationship with Jesus before they could go out and do what they're called to do as an apostle. Relationship first then task. The, the more time you spend with someone, that personality, their character traits start kind of overflowing out of you and through you. When the religious council was trying to condemn Peter and John in Acts chapter 4, one of the things they say is they recognize those guys had been with Jesus. They could see it in their lives. And the priority that Jesus has for these men is the same priority with us, is to immerse ourselves into his presence first, to follow him where he goes, to listen to his word, to praise him for his goodness, to talk with him, ask him for direction in every decision you make. It's to be with him regularly, close to him, before we go out and do the tasks he's called us to. These men would be close to to Jesus, different from the crowds. They're going to be near him, receptive towards him. And then Jesus names them apostles. He names them. So apostle means that they're, they're sent on an official service with a commission from Jesus. They have this official service. Naming something, as Adam did in the garden, displays authority over it over another, that you get to determine its essence, you get to determine its purpose and its end. And here Christ is naming them apostles. Now this is a unique role for the early church. God was going to confirm the words of these men with significant signs and wonders and mighty works to give credibility to their message. But nowhere do we expect to see this office Apostle passed on today. Jesus miraculously appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus and affirmed him. And the, in Acts chapter 1, the disciples appointed a, uh, Matthias to replace Judas. 
But the early church did showed no signs of continuing this office, and we should not expect it today. It was a particular office for a particular time in church history that has fulfilled its purpose as the message of the gospel went out through them and God affirmed it with signs and wonders and miracles. But their identity was apostle. Relationship with Jesus came first, and then what was their activity? Look at verse 14. He appointed the 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. So verse 14, he would send them out to preach, to, to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the saving activity of God in Jesus Christ, to tell others what Jesus has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. You tell others of the kingdom of light that conquers the kingdom of darkness, the good news of life after death. You tell people of their hope in Christ, their capacity to be freed from sin because of Jesus who conquered death and conquered sin and its consequence and can conquer its power in your life and the presence of it in your life. And someday you'll be freed from the penalty of it. This is all good news that they were meant to go and proclaim about Jesus. So there was a verbal change in their life. But there was also a behavioral change. In verse 15, it says, have authority to cast out demons, to act in the name of Jesus to cast out demons. Jesus is here transferring his authority from himself to his apostles to show that he's empowering them to carry out a mission, to carry out his plans and purposes, even, even in his own absence. And one of the things they were doing was casting out demons, which shows that there's a true hostility, a constant hostility between two kingdoms that's real and active and that Jesus alone has the power over. Now, not even in the first century was it normative for people to be casting out demons. Many of Jesus' own disciples would struggle with this later. In Acts chapter 7, one of my favorite stories actually in Acts, the seven sons of Sceva try to cast out demons. And the demons are like, we know Jesus, and we know Paul, but who are you? <laughs> and it's not good for the seven sons of Sceva after that. Later instructions to the church are characteristically, characteristically absent of instruction on casting out demons. So it was a central time there and the place for Jesus. And Jesus can do whatever he wants right now in the lives of his people. My point is that it wasn't the normative behavior in the lives of God's people then. What, what does it call us to do, though? It, our focus is on keeping Jesus primary in our lives, crying out to him at all times for his power to rule in our heart and mind, inviting his presence into every arena of your life, trusting that the very presence of the living Jesus Christ will force out all evil and darkness and sin in your life and give you power to walk in a manner pleasing to him. So, so the apostles are called to Jesus to be with him. Flowing from that, they would go preach Jesus and act in his name. It was a relationship before a task. And there's danger, so much danger in getting this mixed up. That you're to be made like him because you're with him. And then you go and act in his name. You relationally engage Jesus Christ. He prioritizes the relationship. And then you go act in his name. You go speak in his name. 
If we don't prioritize the relationship with Jesus, then our tasks won't reflect his character. We won't go in his name if we don't know him and delight in him. We won't reflect his character if we haven't been with him. Being with him is the way his image is restored in our lives. As we behold the glory of the Lord, we're transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. Your time with Jesus brings you peace, brings you contentment, reminds your heart of the forgiveness of your sins, that there's no condemnation. And then we go and act like Jesus. We speak like Jesus. We proclaim the goodness of Jesus. That task follows and flows out of relationships. Know and enjoy Jesus and let that behavior flow out into speech and activity. Be with Jesus. Not, not like the crowds who just wanted to get what they could get from Jesus, but like the apostles who were with him. And being in their presence, in his presence, changed their speech and behavior, which is evident because we're here today. Like the seeds he sowed in their hearts and lives right then. The evidence that their reality is that we're still worshiping Jesus today. We'll get there. But notice the third group mentioned is his family in verses 20 and 21. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so they couldn't even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he's out of his mind. So his family's motive was not to be with Jesus. It was to correct Jesus. Jesus is soon going to redefine family for us at the end of chapter 3 in Mark. But here, his family, his biological blood family, is coming to correct him. They catch wind of the crowds, Jesus' popularity. We're going to go and correct Jesus. They're embarrassed by him. They think he's lost his mind. They felt like he was out of sorts and needed some direction. Like, Jesus, I know. I know we're related. There's a few things here you need to calm down on, Jesus, you know. I mean, you're doing some amazing stuff, but Jesus, you're, you're the, the word here that they're saying he's out of his mind is that he's, he's completely irrational. Jesus, you're irrational. Can you tone it down a bit? You're making us all look bad. We share the same name, Jesus. You know, they're, they're coming to correct him. Make him look a little bit better. Make him serve their interests. There's, a, there's really a danger to this, too, for us to try and make Jesus look better. Um, sometimes we can think we know some things better than he does. We can assume his message isn't really relevant to today's culture, so we're going to soften the edges. We're going to make Jesus appear a little differently. Jesus, I know you said this, but what our culture kind of really believes now is different, and so that's not going to go over so well, so... Maybe we should change your message, Jesus, a little bit. Maybe we should soften some edges. Maybe we should not hold to some things that are clear in Scripture because we're a little embarrassed by it. It's kind of what Jesus' family's doing here. But our call is to receive Jesus, is to be with him, not shape him, not shape him. Let him shape us. Let him correct us as we are with him. And that's exactly what he does with these 12 men. Look at verse 14. He appointed the 12. That appointed is that he made. He made the 12. He created the 12. 
It's the same word in the Greek Old Testament in Genesis 1-1 that God created the heavens and the earth. He created the 12, and then he named them apostles. And what did God do right after he created Adam? Adam named the animals. Jesus is making a new people and a new creation in his new covenant. This is flowing out of what Brandon pointed out a few weeks ago, that Jesus flipping the script. He's ushering in something new. And with his people, he's got a new people and a new creation in his new covenant that are fulfilling everything his old has been moving towards. These 12 men are created by Jesus. This is the, one of the main consistencies between all the gospels that reference the disciples or the apostles is that they say there are 12. And Mark reiterates it twice. He's 12. He appointed 12. To be with Jesus is to be with his people. It's to be one of his own that he's, he's called together. He's joining them together. And think about these guys. We don't know a lot about them, but you and I are standing on their shoulders. We don't know all they did for the gospel. But we know that the church exists right now. Front Range Alliance Church is here today because of the apostles. All these men were normal guys of the land, respectable, middle society guys with Jesus. And then they extended his name out to the ends of the earth. Judas is mentioned here. It blows my mind that Mark mentioned Judas. If you're trying to make Christianity look good, if you're trying to make it sell on your own effort, you're going to omit Judas. That's not what he does. He includes him. It's foreshadowing our Lord's betrayal and death. And these diverse people are united around one thing. Being with Jesus. You've got Peter who speaks before he thinks and assumes he's willing to die for Jesus. You've got Thomas who's devoted but doubtful. Like, I don't know, not until I see it, not until I see it. And then as soon as he sees it, my Lord and my God, Thomas says. You've got Thaddeus who's Judas, not Iscariot, it says. He wanted Jesus to be known broadly. He kind of said, let's go big with this, Jesus. Let's get your name out there. And you've got James the lesser or the younger, who's most think was kind of small in stature, a modest guy. Simon the zealot was an, an extremist who wanted to overthrow Rome. And now he's united to Matthew, a tax collector who lined the pockets of Rome because they're centered on being with Jesus. The sons of thunder, James and John, James will be the first to die for Jesus, and John is likely the last to live for Jesus. You got Bartholomew who wondered, could anything really good come out of Nazareth? But the Lord said he had no deceit in him. You got Andrew. We don't know a lot about Andrew, but he brought Peter to Jesus. And we know a lot about Peter. And we're all better because of Peter. What a mixed bag. If you didn't love Jesus, I wouldn't move here from Kentucky. Jesus unites us. Jesus brings us together. Our union's in Jesus. But don't mistakenly forget that we've all got a little bit of the crowd in us. We all want to get Jesus for what he brings us and tend to forget who he is. And we all have a little bit of his family in us too. We kind of try to soften the edges. Sometimes Jesus is a little embarrassing. But just like Jesus' family in the crowd, 
If you'll come to Jesus and prioritize the relationship with Jesus to be with him, he'll transform your heart and mind. He'll give you the appropriate love for him. He'll work in you to give you him the desire for the things that please him. The nearness of the Lord is to us our good, the psalmist says. Our blessedness comes in being with Jesus. So when we sense that tendency of the crowd just to get what we can from Jesus, let's repent of that and let's hold fast to Jesus. When we feel that tendency of a family that we're a little embarrassed by Jesus and we wish he would change, let's let's return from that and seek Jesus and be with Jesus and let him form in us his very image. And then like the apostles, let's go out. Let's proclaim the good news of Jesus. Let's just tell others how glorious it is to be with him. And may the world say about us what they said about Peter and John. They've been with Jesus. They've been with Jesus. So as we enjoy our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm going to pray. And we're going to turn our hearts to enjoy the spiritual presence of our Lord in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for coming to us. And thank you that by the power of your spirit, through faith in you, we can be with you. We can know and enjoy your presence, your goodness towards us. And as we spend time with you and delight ourselves in you, Lord, you will form in us that which is pleasing in your eyes. We pray that now as we partake of the bread and the juice, that we will taste and see that you are good, Lord, that we will bring to mind and remembrance your sacrifice for us, that we will receive anew the promises of the gospel, that our sins are forgiven, and that in you we have everything. We pray all these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.